Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. I want to welcome you to our Torah study this Sabbath. We are in the book of Exodus at chapter 10. We're in the part of the story where God has sent Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh. They've been telling Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh's been hardening his heart, rejecting. And we've already gone through the first seven judgments, and we're on the brink of getting ready to go on the last three judgments, the locusts, the darkness, and the Passover. And the word that here is the word go. And in chapter, um, one, or chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. This word go is going to show up multiple times in this Torah portion. And let me just give you a hint of what that is as we get into it. The first time we hear it is when Moses is told to go to Pharaoh. Then next time you hear it, it's Pharaoh using the word go. He says, okay, you can go, you can leave Egypt, but you got to leave your children here. Go without your children. Of course, that was unsatisfactory. That was verse 11. And then after that, Pharaoh will say, okay, you can take your children, but go without your animals. Don't go with your herds and your flocks. Of course, that was unacceptable. That was verse 24, because they're going to use some of the animals for the feasts to the Lord. They were going to sacrifice them. Then verse 28, he's going to say, go, get out of my sight. Uh, that's Pharaoh using the word go and is, is trying to chill the Israel. Okay, go, but he's putting restrictions on it. The last restriction is go. I don't want to see your face again. If the, the day you see my face, you'll surely die. Um, and then finally, the last go, which will be in chapter 11, is the Lord. And it's, it's finally Pharaoh going to say, go and with all who will follow you. And it will not just be the descendants of Jacob that will be leaving Egypt. And anybody who believes in the God of Israel will be leaving with them. And by the way, the Egyptians who have been introduced to the Lord, a whole bunch of them and other slaves that were in Egypt, they will be going with the children of Israel as well. Because the scripture tells us that it was a mixed multitude that came out of Egypt uh, to leave Egypt at that time. So that's kind of a precursor to what we're going to be seeing. So let's look at these last three judgments that God is going to put upon Egypt. Um, then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. One of the key provisions of keeping the Passover is we are to teach our sons what happened here. And uh, as we get into that memorial and we learn more about it, one of the provisions of it is this is how strongly that's to be done. We are literally to say to our sons, that I was the one that was in Egypt and I was the one that was brought out of Egypt by the Lord to tell him the story as though it's direct. It's like his own father did this. And he is to teach his son the same thing, that to make it as personal as you possibly can be. And by the way, that it makes all kinds of sense 
in terms of really understanding the story of redemption and what God is going to be doing here through the blood of the Lamb, uh, of which we've already been introduced to the Lamb of God by Abraham, promising to Aaron the Lamb of God. We're going to see the demonstration of what the Lamb of God, the work of redemption that God does, and we are to understand that that's personal, a personal redemption. Now, let me just tell you that for most people, they look at what takes place here as a corporate redemption for Israel, and I'm not disagreeing with that at all. That certainly is present, but it's very clear that when the Messiah came, his redemption that he spoke of was very personal. He was emphasizing personal redemption over corporate redemption. And that's what the effort is here. By telling your son about what transpired, you're trying to make it a personal redemption for you and for your family. And that's so there's no disputing between the redemptions. Redemption from God is both corporate for a people as well as personal for individuals. For some reason, uh, a lot of my Christian brethren miss this whole point. And they think that all of this has to do just with Israel and somehow the Messiah is not involved and not part of it. And I'll point out some things here where he's highly involved. And that when we get to Christianity and the faith here, what we have here is completely different than what God was doing before, you know, because this is personal for us and for the church that identifies and not part of Israel anymore. And, and this is where we get covenant theology, people calling that the old covenant, and this is the new covenant business. And they miss the point that, for example, the first time we hear about really God's grace is in the story of Noah. Noah was saved by grace. He wasn't sold by keeping commandments, uh, but he did obey the Lord, followed his instructions. Here, God is telling uh, Moses that this, this thing that's getting ready to happen about Egypt and the Passover, you're to tell your son that this is to be personal to you and to your children. By the way, when you want to grab a man's heart, all you have to do is interfere with his children. Now you got his attention. So it's personal redemption for me that I'm expressing to my son so that you can express personal redemption for you by the Lord. Now that's all being taught in the midst of God delivering the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Um, this is not a new and novel idea. This is what the original instruction was for. By the way, I will just say the most, the most Christian thing I ever did in my life was sit down and eat the Passover Seder with other brethren. You're actually sitting in the same meal that the Messiah had with his disciples. Gee, isn't that interesting that the church doesn't do that? I wonder why not. Well, they've substituted other things, and uh, which is what we're not supposed to do, is listen to the instruction of men. We're supposed to be listening to the instruction of God. But that's another lesson in the future. Back to our Torah portion. Verse 3, Then Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of heaven, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts in your territory, and they shall cover the surface of the land, so that no one is able to see the land, and they shall also eat the rest of what has escaped. 
what is left to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree that sprouts for you out of the field. Then your houses will be filled, the houses of all your serpents, the houses of your Egyptians, something which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do not realize that Egypt is destroyed. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to him, Go and serve the Lord your God. Uh, who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons, our daughters, with our flocks, with our herds. Uh, we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, Thus uh, may the Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven from Pharaoh's presence. And again, this is a case where Pharaoh says, I'll let the men go, but that's it. You go serve the Lord, and then you come back, uh, kind of thing. He's still dictating terms. He's still being treacherous in his negotiations to not truly cooperate with the Lord or with the children of Israel. Uh, verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant of the land, even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out the staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts came up over the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt, and they were very numerous. And there had never been so many locusts, nor would there ever be so many again. For they covered the surface of the land, so that the land was darkened, and ate every plant of the land and all the fruit trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron, and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now please forgive me my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he will only remove this death from me. And he went out from Pharaoh and made supplications for the Lord. So the Lord shifted the wind to a very strong west wind, which took the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. And not one locust was left in all of the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. Now, a couple of things I want to share with you about this. Um, every once in a while in the news, you'll hear about another swarm of locusts, either in Africa or in the Middle East. And they will always use this expression, oh, we got a lot of locusts here, and it's of biblical proportions. And what they're doing is they're referring to this story of locusts that came upon Egypt of biblical proportions. In other words, nothing you've ever seen in your lifetime, swarm, eat, everything. Not too many years ago, uh, there was a small swarm of locusts uh, that was operating, I believe, up in South Dakota. And I uh, remember the news accounts on this, and these locusts all came into this one farmer's place and settled for a day at his farm. And the next day when he got up, after the locusts had left, he was recounting what had happened. These locusts came in 
ate every leaf off of every tree, ate every blade of grass, ate the screens on the screens of his house. Apparently that was some kind of fibrous material, not metal. And they ate all the screens. And the kids' trampoline, they ate every bit of it to where it was just the hanging springs and the shell of it. There wasn't a bit of trampoline left. They had eaten every bit. And literally, he walked down the next day, and his place looked like he was in the dead of winter. There wasn't a, a green living thing uh, for it. And he was talking about how utterly devastating it was for these locusts to hit. And this is essentially what happened here to Egypt. These locusts came in and flat wiped this place out. Now you'll note before this judgment came, the wise men of Egypt are telling Pharaoh, let these people get out of here. Don't you realize that Egypt has been destroyed? Enough damage had already taken place that a reasonable minded person there in Egypt said, we're not going to make it through this. We're, we're, we're dead. Archaeologically, uh, this was a very interesting discovery. And they use Egyptian archaeology as kind of the ruler of world archaeology and world history. And uh, they really hold strong to exactly when things took place. And they dispute this biblical record of the children of Israel being down in Egypt and things like that. And they claim there's no evidence in the Egyptian history about any of these events. Well, I would beg to differ with them just slightly. First of all, no, they're not going to hear about uh, Jacob. They're not going to hear about Joseph. No, they're not going to hear about God coming with Moses. No, they're not going to hear about that. But the one thing they do put in their archaeological record, there was a period of time, we believe at this time, in which the land of Egypt died for 40 years. They, they flat said the land of Egypt was dead for 40 years. The same 40 years that Israel is in the wilderness, Egypt is dead. And I thought that was rather <coughs> significant and poignant that goes back to what we're studying about here. The magicians were correct. Egypt was dead. Now we're going to have these locusts come and eat every last cotton-picking green thing that can be eaten. You know, just wipe the, the plate clean. It's a little bit like, well, lick the plate clean. And the locusts just came and licked it clean to where there was nothing left of Egypt and for it. This time, Pharaoh is asking for, to repent. He's asking, you know, help, help us. And he says, verse 17, I'm only asking this only once. Not going to do it repeatedly, only once. He's a liar. Um, have you ever heard somebody come up, oh, please forgive me, just this one time. Do you believe that's sincere when you hear that? By adding the phrase, only this once. It proves how insincere it is. If a person is truly sincere about asking forgiveness, they will simply say that. Please forgive me. They don't add anything to it. They don't do anything more. They don't try to justify it. They don't try to explain why you should do it. And that's what Pharaoh's doing here. Only this once. Look, I'm not asking you to keep forgiving me just this one time. Just give me once. 
So it's part of his justification to be forgiven, which illustrates it's not true forgiveness at all. So this is what transpires for us. Then verse 21 comes. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there was darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. And Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be detained here, and your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore our livestock too will go with us. Not a hoof will be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we will serve the Lord. Then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again, for in the day that you uh, see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, You are right. I shall never see your face again. Now, I want you to take note of when we went through the judgments. I didn't point it out while we were going through, but there's something rather interesting about all these judgments. The first judgment was done at Pharaoh's palace. Moses went to Pharaoh's palace and told him. The second judgment was done at the river Nile. Pharaoh was at the Nile. They went there. The third judgment was unannounced. In other words, they didn't talk to Pharaoh at all. It just happened. The fourth judgment was at the palace. The fifth at the river Nile. The sixth unannounced. The seventh at the palace. The eighth at the river Nile. The ninth unannounced. What do you think is going on here? Well, what it's showing is a pattern. The judgments that fell upon Egypt were really a set of nine judgments and they came in three different modes. By the way, if you read the book of Revelation, you're going to see something very similar. God is going to have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven plagues. Those are going to be the judgments. This is one of the evidences that these are judgments that come from God. God has planned these things. He has purposed these things for us. And that's an excellent example about when you, one of the things you do to go into Scripture and to glean it, to learn its truths and its uh, wisdom, is to look and discover if there's any patterns uh, that go with it. And we clearly see patterns here in the Egyptian judgments. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see patterns in a multitude of places of Scripture. And it's part of the insight that comes from the study of Scripture to understand what God's really doing uh, in this process for it. Now, this darkness hits, and nobody is moving around except for the children of Israel. By the way, did you know that many of these judgments are actually spoken of in the book of Revelation? I'm going to emphasize in particular the judgment about darkness. We had a judgment of darkness that came upon Egypt, you know, for three days. The judgment of darkness that will come upon the world in the Great Tribulation is five months, not three days. 
The judgment that came upon Egypt, you know, convinced the Egyptians that they were flat dying. They, they had no hope, no, no sense of what was going to be going on. And when the darkness comes upon the earth, scientists tell us today that if the earth as a planet goes without light from the sun for four months that the planet dies, that life is not sustainable on the planet. And the darkness will be coming for five months. So that when the prophecy talks about the coming of the Lord, is that unless he had shortened those days, no flesh would have survived. It's primarily because of the darkness and the length of darkness. And he comes back to deliver his people. The others are the ones that are in trouble uh, from it. Isn't it also interesting that when he talks about ultimate judgment for people, they go into outer darkness. They go where there's no life, no life-sustaining element uh, for them at all. The, uh, uh, so we've mentioned about the patterns that they have in these judgments, how that plays into the future and so forth. There's one other thing I want to tell you that has to do with the future. Um, as you're getting ready to find out, uh, the Passover, uh, they were told, Moses told the, the children of Israel on the 10th of Nisan to get a lamb, to get a yearling lamb. And then on the eve of the 14th, they slayed the lamb uh, for the Passover. And beginning on the 15th, then they began to make their departure from the land of Egypt. The darkness, let me back you up now. It was before the 10th, and they had just spoken to Pharaoh after the darkness was over with. The darkness had lasted three days. Uh, so that was on the 9th, and so the 8th and the 7th, the three days. The darkness fell on Egypt on the 6th of Nisan. Three days of darkness. Go tell them to get a lamb. Four days later, Passover. Um, there is a prophecy of darkness to come in the Great Tribulation. And there's a very specific prophecy that addresses it. It's actually found in Daniel chapter 7. There's a couple of places where it talks about where there's an angel talking to another angel. Daniel overhears it. And when she says, from the time that the altar is shut down until the temple is restored, that would be the kingdom. How long will it be? And the other angel answers and says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. And that's a very intriguing unit of measure. Most prophecies about the end of days are in days or months, years. But this is the first time where it's in the evenings and mornings. And so one of the questions is, well, what exactly is that? I have seen a lot of other Bible teachers, they just simplify it and they make it days, 2,300 days. It's just a goofy way of saying days. I don't agree with that. I believe that an evening is a very specific thing and a morning is a very specific thing and there's one of each of those in a day. So 2,300 evenings and mornings would mean that the actual number of days, if you're looking for a day count, would be like 1,150 days. And he says that starting with the shutting down of the altar, the first event of the Great Tribulation, there'll be 1,150 days. What would happen 
on that day where there's no more evenings or mornings. Well, evenings and mornings are a result of sunrise and sunset. If the sun is not seen and you're, the world is in darkness, then you don't have an evening or a morning. So I believe that prophecy is speaking to when the darkness comes, which, by the way, of all the different judgments that can fall in the Great Tribulation, that's the one that we're going to need to pay very, very close attention to in the midst of the Great Trib, when the darkness comes. So uh, it turns out that if you count that dimension over 1150 days and then you count the remaining days to the blessed day, the blessed day is the final day of the, of the day counts, the 1335th day, and you count back the uh, 45 days of the month of Elul. I know this is getting complicated, but let me just take my word for it. I can show you a timeline that shows this. If you count back and come to the matching day of 1150 after the altar starts, guess what day that falls on on the Hebrew calendar? 6 Nisan. 6 Nisan. It's projected that in a future 6 Nisan, darkness will fall upon the earth in the Great Tribulation, replicating the darkness that fell upon Egypt. And just as the Scripture says here that there was darkness in the land of Egypt, but in the dwelling places of the children of Israel, they had light. Isaiah chapter 60 says that when the darkness comes over the face of the whole earth and all the peoples of the world are in darkness, it says they will rise to the light that is with you, that we will have light in our dwelling places where we are at during that period of time. The parallels prophetically to the Great Tribulation back to this plague of darkness in the Egyptians is utterly profound. And to me, is one of the evidences that further substantiates the truth of what is getting ready to happen. If you'll stop for just a moment and ask yourself a question, do you really believe that there is this God who created this family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the children of Israel, and these events of coming out of Egypt are real events, and these are real judgments, and God really did send Moses, and all these things happened, Based on that, then you must believe that there's going to be this greater exodus and all these other events are going to take place that follow after the pattern of the original ancient exodus. To me, I find that very encouraging. So when I find the anniversary of the plague of darkness on the Egyptians turning out to be the projected date of when the sun uh, is the evening and the morning are no longer seen, in the Great Tribulation, that is great encouragement to me. That validates to me the, the truth of what God is saying here and increases my confidence to believe what He said for our days. Not just this is what He did in the past, but He's going to do this for us uh, so that we will know the Lord just as our ancestors did as well. All right, enough said on that. We are now shifting to where we're going to have this final this final judgment that will come upon Egypt. Um, and uh, so we're going to go to verse 24, chapter 10. Then Pharaoh called to Moses, said, Go serve the Lord, let your flocks and your herds um, be detained, even one. And so he denies him and he says um, that I'll never see you again. 
And at this point, that's a very true statement. Pharaoh is not going to be seen again by Moses. Pharaoh and Egypt is going to suffer the last plague. Chapter 11. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Not only is he going to let you go, he's going to insist that you leave. You know, whereas before he wouldn't let him go, now he insists that you leave. But let me just go ahead and say something right now. The children of Israel did not leave Egypt because Pharaoh told them to go. The children of Israel left Egypt because the Lord said go. It's just that Pharaoh finally agreed with God because it was always God's plan that they were going to leave Egypt. Speak now, verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of gold and silver. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses was himself greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there's never been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog shall not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me and saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And you will, and, and he will, went out with Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. Let the Lord harden, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of the land. Again, that's a commentary. What was ha happening God's purpose was to remove the children of Israel from Egypt and in so doing, let Egypt and Pharaoh know that he was Lord. All Pharaoh wanted to do was get a harder heart. He just wanted to resist even more. And essentially that's what happened. That is the state of affairs before we come to the final plague. Chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Let me just stop right there. If you look at a Hebrew calendar, the turn of the year is in the fall. Uh, in fact, on one Tishri, the, uh, we call it uh, Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, Yom Teruah. And we consider that the turn of the year. God makes decisions through the fall holidays, who's going to live and who's going to die that year. And so that's the annual cycle. And some even suggest that's the creation count, that that was the, the creation count. However, he's now saying here the month of Nisan, which is in the springtime, shall be the head of months. And that's what Israel has that's very confusing to a lot of Christians. The counting of the months begins in the spring. So Nisan is called the first month. The month of Tishri at the turn of the year is called the seventh 
month. So the counting of months is different from the counting of years. They're not linked together like in, in uh, Roman Greco terms, January is the first month and it's the head of the year. But not so with the Hebrews and not so. And you need to keep this in mind because this Bible is written in a Hebrew mindset. It's not written in Roman Greco Western mindset. So when it talks about certain months, naming them or numbering them, you got to remember how God's calendar in the Bible is different from the calendar that we have here on the earth, the Roman calendar that we all use. Actually, it's the Julian calendar that we actually use and the, the Gregorian calendar. He was a Pope. Gregory is the one that actually set the one that we actually have at the moment. But it was Roman emperors that built the calendars the world uses. Uh, but the Hebrews have a different kind of calendar for it. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they're each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to the father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, what's interesting about that date, 10 Nisan, is if you go into the Gospels and you look at the Passion Week, this is the final week of Yeshua's life when he first comes into Jerusalem and when he's arrested and the Passover and when he's crucified and when he's resurrected, we call the Passion Week. The day that Yeshua came into Jerusalem riding on the back of the colt was the 10th of Nisan. The same day, the children of Israel had been told to take a lamb, to examine it, to get it ready for the Passover. When Yeshua came in to Jerusalem, into that area, the Gospels record for us that there were several people who came up and questioned and examined Yeshua. Um, the Gentiles that were there, they gladly received him. They were rejoicing. They were throwing their cloaks out in front of him, palm branches. I mean, they were having a celebration of him coming in. However, then you get to another group. You get scribes and Pharisees. And now they're asking very critical questions. And finally, he runs into the Sadducees, and they are asking very, very critical and negative questions you know, about him. They're all being examined. They're examining the Lamb of God to see if there be any spot or blemish. And in the Gospels, it's recorded for us, every generation to examine. Can we go back and see what was the examination of Yeshua before he was sacrificed? The answer is yes. We have recorded for us the questions that were asked and the answers that were given. Every one of us can make a judgment that, answered, that Yeshua answered correctly and there was no sin found in him. Just the way the children of Israel were supposed to take the lamb into their house, examine the lamb, play with the lamb, check the lamb out, make sure there's no spot, no blemish, no sickness, no, no nothing. Make sure it's a good, healthy lamb ready for Passover. The same things happened when Yeshua came into Jerusalem and was examined as the lamb of God, just as the requirement calls for the Passover to be brought in the household and examined for it as well. Verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You shall make it, take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation at Israel will kill it at the twilight. Now, there's a little bit of a controversy about this. What exactly is the twilight of the 14th? 
Is that on the 14th or is that at the start of the 14th? Because if you understand Hebrew time, a day does not begin at midnight like the Gregorian calendar. A day becomes, begins at sundown. So on Friday night at sundown is the beginning of Sabbath, the seventh day. So if you're going to have Passover and it's going to start, it's going to be on the evening time after the 13th day has taken place. Now, for us, you know, in the Roman Greco tradition, we always consider the evening to be associated with the same day that we had earlier. But that's not true in Hebrew thinking. That's a completely different day. So if it says that the lamb is to be slain at twilight, at the beginning of, of the darkness, and that's what twilight is, at the very beginning of the day, then guess when that would be? That would actually be in the evening of the 13th of Nisan for us, the way we think. Whereas the 14th wouldn't begin until after midnight, but the 14th does begin in the evening at that time. And the twilight is as the sun is going down and we're first starting to see the twinkling of the stars and that's referred to as twilight. A lot of controversy about this. There's a lot of different people that argue different things for the twilight and the reason for it is because there's not too many references in the scripture that uses this language about the twilight and about the Passover. And there's always been controversy in the history of Israel about exactly when is the Passover supposed to be observed. And uh, the Sadducees, interestingly enough, used to observe the Passover. They would slay the Passover lamb on the afternoon and evening of the 13th, and they would eat it the evening, the beginning of the 14th. And it appears that Yeshua and his disciples followed exactly that example. But the Pharisees now, they didn't consider that Passover. And they would go all the way into the day, and then in the evening, they would have the Passover, and it would actually be the beginning of the 15th. It would be the end of the 14th, the beginning of the 15th. If you go up to a, a Jewish calendar today, and you look to see, well, when is Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread? I can guarantee you, you will find out that they say that Pesach, Passover, begins on the 15th and extends for eight days to the 22nd. In Leviticus 23, Moses is going to give this very precise instruction, and he's going to emphatically say the Passover is to be on the 14th. The Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th through the 21st. This is one of the areas where the controversy, ancient controversy, between Sadducees and Pharisees has spilled all the way over to this present day. And even within Messianic Jewish circles, there's controversy of exactly when you keep the Passover. And some, they want to stick with the rest of Israel, which is following the rabbinical order of things, instead of following the order in which the Messiah did things. I've never quite understood that. I've I got to be honest with you, I just don't understand why are we following the traditions of men? Why aren't we following the instructions of the Lord? seems to me that that lesson has been taught emphatically uh, to us, particularly about knowing who the Messiah is. All right, but you, I want you to see the basis of where this starts, where this controversy starts. It has to do with the instruction by God 
to Moses about when to prepare the Passover and eat it. He goes on further to say, verse 7, Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on, and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but roast rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it in the, in the morning, you shall burn with fire. I want you to take note of something. They don't field dress the animal. They didn't open it up and remove its entrails, which is normally what you do. They, they skinned it. They put it on the spit. They roasted it, and they would cut off pieces of it. They didn't break a bone. They didn't uh, destroy its basic body. And whatever they didn't eat, the rest was then consumed by fire. That's how they disposed of it. Um, and, it's, and it's very important uh, that when we have the Passover, we have a shank bone, a shank bone of a lamb that is put on the Passover, and it needs to be a full and complete bone. Uh, to, to illustrating the bone is not broken. The bone is intact. Um, to represent uh, the lamb in this memorial meal. That's part of the instructions that was given here. We get down to, um, um, let me read here from uh, the, uh, verse 11. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. There's a day coming, my friends, when you're going to see the altar get shut down and you're going to know the great tribulation has started and other prophecies will be happening. And Passover will come a short time after that. You're going to be remaining here and you're going to eat that Passover. And this time when you eat that Passover, you're going to be packed up and ready to go because as soon as that Passover is over with and the Feast of Unleavened uh, occurs, you're going to eat the bread of haste and you're going to leave Egypt. You're going to get up out of your home and you're going to go into the wilderness to join with your other brethren uh, to do it. And in the same manner as the children of Israel did, they ate the Passover so that the next day they could prepare to leave. They, it was the bread of haste. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so the plague will befall you uh, to destroy you when I will not fall upon you when I destroy you, when I strike the land of Egypt. Um, the same thing is with us, with the Messiah. We say ourselves of ourselves, the Messiah, his blood covers us. We're looking at him as the Passover lamb. His blood shed covers us and we are passed from death to life. The promise of eternal life for believing in Yeshua is based on the Passover. I, how do I know I have the promise of eternal life? Because I have eaten the Passover, the blood of the Lamb has covered me, and I am passed from death to life. So the whole idea of understanding eternal life is the product of eating the Passover, the Lord's Passover. Verse 14, now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, and you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. 
Hmm. Does that really mean even today? Does permanent ordinance mean even now? One of my contentions to you in teaching the Torah portion is all of these things belong to you. These are commandments for you. The, the, the heritage of Abraham belongs to you. The promises of the land and the kingdom belong to you. The redemption of the Lord belongs to you. The Holy Spirit given by the Lord belongs to you. The promises of God all belong to you. So do the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord. They all belong to you. If you're a believer of Yeshua of Nazareth, you're a believer of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, this is a permanent ordinance for you to do. Now, let me tell you what the church has done to substitute for this. Instead of eating the Passover meal on this date, they take the element of the unleavened bread and they take the element of a little tiny cup of wine or juice and they do what's called Christian communion. And it's not following the pattern of the Passover. It's not the memorial Passover feast. It's a substitution <coughs> for the Passover. So Christians will eat communion and claim they're getting the same thing. Well, I'm not going to stand here and say they're not, but I think there is somebody else who made these rules. He will be determining whether that satisfies him or not as to whether or not you kept the ordinance. Now, there's no question the Passover is a permanent ordinance, and there's no question that communion is a recent ordinance. I don't recall anything in the New Testament that ever said you will do communion as a permanent ordinance. In fact, you won't find anything in the New Testament that talks about communion at all. That's a creation of churchmen. What you will hear throughout the New Testament is Yeshua and his disciples eating the Passover. That's what you'll hear. And this statement here says this is a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. That means as long as you last, tell your son. Your son will tell his son. His son will tell his son. That's not a set period of time. Oh, until the new covenant comes. It didn't say that. It said it will be forever. It's a permanent ordinance. Verse 15, more of the instruction. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses for whomever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And on the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all should be done except that what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. Did you notice there were two separate ordinances? There's one ordinance, which is Passover, and there's another ordinance, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, let me go ahead and cut to the chase to you. Why in the world did God say that the first day of the Feast of Unleavened would be a high Sabbath and the seventh day would be a high Sabbath? Because historically, what's going to take place the children of Israel will begin their journey out of Egypt on the first day of unleavened bread. 
Now, on the seventh day of unleavened bread is when they're going to be crossing the Red Sea and completely out of Egypt. During those seven days, they're eating the bread of haste. They're in movement. There's no time to let the bread rise, so they're eating unleavened bread. And the reason why we observe this feast is to remember our ancestors escaping out of Egypt. Why in the world does God want us to keep remembering the things that happened in Egypt? Why is it that the dominant story of the entire Torah is this one that we're looking at right now? There's more scriptures going to talk about these events and what transpired after they left than anything else. The book of Genesis would just explain where this people came from. But here on out, we're talking about all of the events of the children of Israel leaving Egypt, receiving new instructions, being established as a nation, and they're traveled through the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the promised land. That's what it's all about. That's the dominant teaching. Oh, by the way, for those of us looking for the coming of the Lord, this is the dominant teaching. This is about the journey to the promised land. This is about getting out of this world, trials and tribulations, Mitzrayim, our wilderness experience, the great tribulation, and getting into the promised land, which is the messianic kingdom with the Messiah. So we keep these memorials to t constantly teach each generation to understand the history and how it's going to play into our future as well. Uh, and it gives this instruction that we'll do it uh, for seven full days. Uh, verse 21, Then Moses called for the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to their families and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood, which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood to the, uh, uh, the basin to the lintel and to the do two doorposts. And you shall go out of uh, the door of the house and shall not go out of the door of your house until morning. And the Lord will pass through in the night, smite the Egyptians. Now what follows here is the, how they, they accomplished that and how those things took place. And then we get to... Verse uh, 37, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkot and about 600,000 men on foot aside from children and a mixed multitude also went up with them along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. And they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay nor had they prepared for any provisions for themselves." So we've now to the journey of the first place they all gather. They're still in Egypt. And the first place they all gather is one big group is a place called Sukkot. Well, Sukkot actually means huts, tents, tabernacles. They were in temporary shelters. They're out of their houses. So they set up tents and they're going to be dwelling those as they travel and move. And that's their shelter while they're going through the wilderness. Sukkot comes up many times in Scripture, not the least of which is we're going to learn the final holiday that God's going to command us to keep is called Sukkot. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a feast for essentially uh, seven days, and then there's an eighth day, which is called the Day of the Great Feast, and it, it's the last in the cycle of the Levitical holidays that happens in the fall. So we have this Passover event, 
and it's connected all the way through to the Sukkot event. And the biblical holidays, beginning with Passover all the way to Sukkot, is telling the story about what the Messiah is doing with his people. Um, and he was the Lamb of God. He's the Passover Lamb. Uh, he's the one that's without sin. He's unleavened. Then there's a feast of first fruits. He's the one, the first one that comes out of the ground with eternal life. Then there's the day of declaration, the giving of the Holy Spirit. We proclaim him as Messiah. Then there's trumpets, which is the call of all of God's people. Yom Kippur, day of the Lord, God's judgment on the world. And then finally Sukkot, our first celebration in the kingdom with the Messiah. And remembering this journey that we made out of Egypt to get to the promised land. Now, just as I super simplified the Torah down to the story of one generation, at the end of the ages, the story gets simplified down to the final generation. That's a kind of a macro view of all that's going on. But at the same time, it's a highly personal view because if you go back and think, had you been in Egypt at the time of these events, what would you have thought? What would you have done? Here comes Moses, and he's announcing that this is what's going to be happening, and you're being oppressed. You're having to make bricks without straw, and you're wondering what's going to happen. I hear these promises that God will establish his kingdom. I'm hoping I'll be there. I've got this promise of eternal life in case I die. So what's going to happen? Well, we're getting ready to find out who believes and who doesn't believe. We're getting ready to find out who knows the Lord and who doesn't know the Lord. Let me go ahead and just kind of conclude here for a moment. The only way you're going to make it through the great tribulation and into the kingdom is because God will save you. There's nothing that you can do that can um, make it happen without him. Now, you can cooperate with the Lord in that, but you're not going to be able to replace the Lord in that. So it seems to me that before those events have started to take place, we should learn the lessons of the Egyptian exodus. And in our hearts, we should come to the point where we say, I'm going to trust the Lord. I know the Lord, and I'm going to believe what the Lord says. And I'm going to remain faithful despite all of the things that will be happening, including judgments upon the world, the journeys that I may have to go through, whatever the case may be, as long as I'm with the Lord, I know I will get to the promised land, me and my family. So I leave that with you, and we'll be taking up our next portion next Sabbath. Shabbat shalom.